Well, there are certain people in life with whom we are comforted when they exude confidence. In politics, confidence can sometimes be seen as arrogance, and that kind of confidence can be a bit of a turnoff. There's a sense in which their confidence makes us not want to trust them. We don't think they're genuine. We have a feeling they might say one thing and yet do something else. Their, their promises sometimes don't carry a lot of weight. They don't mean a whole lot. But with certain people, with certain professions especially, we want people that have an air of confidence in what they're doing. We are glad that when we get into an airplane, that the pilot is confident that he or she knows how to fly that plane. If we were to get out of the tunnel and into the plane and glance over uh, to our left and see the pilot in the cockpit and see that he's in a sweat and see that he's reading a book entitled Flying for Dummies, you'd probably think twice about walking down the rest of the aisle and finding your seat. We want a pilot who's confident. We want air traffic controllers who are confident. Right, Stan? Yes. We also want a confident dentist and a confident doctor and a confident mechanic. I'm happy that in our house renovations that we have confident tradespeople. If I were to grab a skill saw or when I look at electric wi uh, electrical wires, I do not exude an air of confidence. You know how a carpenter's motto is measure twice, cut once? One of my equally inept with tools friends said one time his motto is measure once, cut twice, and then go back to the lumber store. <laughs> I can understand that. Well, as we keep moving through our study of 1 John, we come again to this theme of confidence, this theme of assurance. One of the main reasons that John is writing this letter to his congregation and one of the main reasons that God has preserved this letter for us and for our church is to make sure that we have confidence and assurance. Not about certain skills, but about the one thing that matters most, life and eternal life. A summary purpose of the whole letter of 1 John is in 1 John 5 verse 13, where John writes, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. John thought it was important to reassure them that they had eternal life. That's why he's writing these things. That's why he's writing this letter. And why would someone need reassurance? it's because they might be prone to doubt. They might be prone to wonder if they really have eternal life. They might be prone to lack confidence about eternal life. And why would a believer lack confidence? Well, there might be a whole number of reasons. But the one that might cover them all is remaining sin. Remaining sin. Even though we know Christ has died to pay the penalty for sin on Good Friday, even though we know he defeated death 
and defeated the power of sin on Resurrection Sunday, Christians are still prone to doubt. Why? Because of the presence of sin in our lives. The penalty has been done away with. The power of sin has been done away with. But we still have the presence of sin. When we sin, we can have a tendency to wonder whether we have eternal life. In the words of this passage, when we sin, back in 1 John chapter 3 now, that Pastor Wayne read, our hearts can condemn us. Our hearts can condemn us. When we sin, we start to waver in our confidence. Now, in some ways, this is perfectly natural. We have been redeemed. We have been saved from sin. We've been adopted into God's family as his children. In theory, we think we we shouldn't be succumbing to sin anymore. And the Bible even tells us to examine ourselves. Yet at the same time, God also wants us to be assured about our final destiny. He wants us to know that we have eternal life. He doesn't want us just to walk through life doubting, and then when we die, we walk into eternal life. He wants us to have confidence about our salvation. Just a note about this being natural and good in some ways. Issues with assurance will happen most often in churches where there is a call towards holiness and purity and change and separation from the values of the world. In places where believing in God is made to sound easy and made to sound comfortable and where a call to believe the gospel includes little call for change, there will be no issues with assurance. Why? Because people think they are saved. They've been assured that they are saved as long as they make some sort of a a shallow decision with no marked change in behavior or in lifestyle. To those kind of people, they just go on to live however they want, but they never question their salvation. But where a changed life is faithfully and consistently called for, where there's a steady call to obedience based on God's word, where the cost of following God is spelled out, in that kind of environment, people will face issues of assurance. And I'm glad to be able to come along and to join a church that over its history has been concerned with those kinds of things. But because of that, I believe that you also need to hear this message. There are some of you, perhaps many of you, who struggle with this. Do I really have eternal life? God tells me to live this way, and yet I look at my life and and, and I sometimes go the other way. Am I actually a Christian? Have I actually repented? Well, it's that kind of person with those kind of thoughts that John aims to encourage here. John wants Christians to be able to enjoy the benefits of having eternal life now rather than walking around doubting or not being confident. Earlier in this letter, he's already said that someone who professes to be a Christian yet is comfortable in their sin and and practices sin persistently without any desire to repent, there's reason to doubt their salvation. But if someone has an increasing repulsion of sin and an increasing desire for righteousness, that very attitude is probably proof that they are in Christ as Alan so wonderfully sang today, that 
that, that Christ is ours and that we are in Christ, that they have been saved. But in 1 John 3, 19-24, John addresses those whose heart condemns them. Listen, to, listen again as I read that short section for us. 1 John 3, verse 19. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God, and whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God, and God in him. And by this, we know that he abides in us, by the Spirit whom he has given us. Now if you back up to verses 17 and 18, you'll see the specific issue that John is connecting with this need for assurance. But if anyone has the world's good and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Here it's not so much our sin that has a tendency to condemn us, but our lack of love for the brothers and the sisters. When we have an opportunity to meet a brother's or a sister's need, yet we miss it, do we really know Jesus? And it's into that situation that John writes about how you can know that you know God. That's how this section starts, and that's how this section ends. Notice that, verse 19, by this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts. And then at the end of verse 24, by this we know that he abides in us. And right in the middle, in verse 21, it's talking about having confidence in God, confidence before God. And so this, is, this part of John's letter is going to tell us how you can know that you have eternal life. And you're going to find out how you can know and how you can live the Christian life confidently. So when John says, by this we know that we are of the truth, or by this we know he abides in us, what is the this? Well, there are a number of things. The by this in verse 19 points back to verse 18 and even before that, and we looked at that one last week. It's our acts of love for each other. In response to Christ's love for us, we will demonstrate love for one another. Someone who says they're a Christian but sees no reason to attend church regularly or to be with other believers, we can question whether that person is actually saved, whether their claim meets who they actually are. But in verses 19 to 24, we'll see a few more uh, by thises. How can we reassure our hearts even when we get to thinking that we haven't loved as we should? Well, the first reason we can reassure our hearts is there in verse 20. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. It says that when our hearts condemn us, we need to look to God. We need to look at who he is. We need to look at what he's done. God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. When John's talking about our hearts condemning us, I think he's talking about our, our consciences. It's that inner voice that's saying, 
Why didn't you meet that person's need? If you didn't do that, can you really be a Christian? Now our consciences just tell us about ourselves. And here, it was very helpful reading John MacArthur on this. Our our conscience makes judgments on our behavior. Romans 2.15 says, Our conscience bears witness and can either excuse our actions or accuse us. It it looks at what we did and says, Hey, that was good. Good job. Well done. And you'll have joy. Or it can accuse you and condemn you when you sin or you do something wrong. And that's a good thing. But if that persists, it can lead to bring people to a place of depression or to get to the place where you lack assurance. And so our hearts or our conscience can be a good source of conviction or warning. But our conscience is not God, even though God can work through our conscience. But for our conscience to work right and to get the right information, it has to be educated by the law of God. That's what those verses in Romans 2 are talking about. You see, the devil can also work through your conscience. He will tell you that you shouldn't feel guilty. He can dull your consciences. He can sear your consciences. And so you need to make sure that your conscience is informed with the right information, that it's informed by God's laws. That's what happened when you first became a Christian. You recognized that you could not meet the standard of God's laws, and so you repented, and you ran to God, and you said, Help! I need a Savior! And then you put your total faith in that Savior, in His, listen to this, in His law-keeping, and in His dying for your law-breaking, and in His resurrection for your justification. And what happens to your conscience then? What happened to your conscience at that point? Hebrews 9.14 says, The blood of Christ purifies your conscience from dead works to serve a living God. Our conscience has been changed. It's cleaned. It's now sensitive to the law of God. But here is where the rub comes. Our conscience is so cleaned and so sensitive that it can accuse us. It can condemn our hearts, especially when we sin. And it can do that to such a degree that we can doubt or we can lose our assurance of our salvation. And we start to talk to ourselves and say things like, if I'm really a Christian, why would I talk to my children like that? If I'm really a Christian, why would I get angry? If I'm, a, if, if I'm really a Christian, why, why don't I want to read my Bible? If I'm really a Christian, why would I even want to watch that movie? If I'm really a Christian, why do I care so much about how I look? And it can go on and on. And while that's a good thing in some ways, it can also lead to despair. If we get, take it to the extreme, it can lead to an unassured heart. When that happens, what can you do? Where do you go? Well, the answer is in 1 John 3, verse 20. God is greater than our heart, and he knows all things. What's John saying? He's saying that God is greater than our consciences, and we need to go back to who he is and go back to what he's done in saving us. 
when you get to the point that your conscience is condemning you to the point where you are full of doubt about your salvation and about eternal life, just think about what God actually accomplished in your life. God knows more about you than even you do. He hates sin more than you do. But when your heart condemns you, just think of verses. This is why it's important that we hide God's word in our heart. Just think of a promise like Romans 8 verse 1. And be grateful for who God is. Romans 8 1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Did you get that? There is no condemnation. When you repented from your sins and trusted in Christ bearing your sins and in Christ paying the penalty for your sins, you were united with Christ. And when you're united with Christ, there is therefore now no condemnation. Then later on in Romans 8, you'll read things like, If God is for us, who can be against us? Or nothing will be able to separate you from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. Those are all rock-solid promises from the God who is greater than our hearts, from the God who knows everything. He has acted to save you from sin. Now that does not mean that you do not grieve over your sins. But it also means that God knows more than your heart. And if he won't condemn you anymore because your life is hidden in Christ, then you don't need to condemn yourself either. So reassure yourself by God's judgment of you, not your own. Sometimes accusing heart. So by God's acts and salvation, you can know that he abides in you and you in him. Be thankful for what God has done in saving you. Look at what that does. Verse 21, Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. There it is. This is an amazing statement. This is the creator of the universe. This is the great judge. This is the holy God who is awesome in power. Yet it says, you can have confidence before God. When we are justified by faith, Romans 5.1 says, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And listen to this, the next verse. Through him, we have also gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. We can be confident before God. Even though God is still awesome and should have a healthy sense, we should have a healthy sense of reverence for Him, we don't have to shudder in fear in coming before God. We rightly should be condemned to death, but our condemnation was taken by Jesus Christ on that cross. And we are now able to stand before God confidently, confidently because of His grace because of his love, because of his kindness, our hearts can be reassured by what God has done for us. But look at how else we can know that we are Christians, and the rest of these will come a little bit more quickly. This confidence before God allows us to be an asking Christian, an asking Christian. Verse 22, look at verse Uh, I'll go back to verse 21 again, and then beginning of verse 22. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God, and whatever we ask, we receive from Him. He'll say that again in chapter 5, verse 14. This is the confidence that we have before Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. This is a great reminder. If your life 
and I know many of you are like this, if your life is marked by constantly crying out to God and asking Him for things, you can know that your heart has been changed. You truly live out the truth that you can go to God just like a, just like a daughter goes to her daddy and asks for a new dress or a new doll. God is your Abba, Father. You trust God. You, you know that you're His adopted child and that He is the provider. And you know that He can supply all your needs according to the riches of His glory. You have this inner confidence that you can go before God anywhere and at any time and ask Him to help you to for, or to forgive you or to, or to strengthen you or to equip you or to humble you or to pray for a loved one or dozens of other things. It's praying without ceasing. It's a confidence that just sort of rushes into God's presence and says whatever's on your mind. It holds nothing back. That's what confidence before God can generate. It generates a boldness to ask God about anything according to his will. And you see what else it says? If that's not enough, it says that whatever you ask, you receive from him. No, that's blessing upon blessing. Not only do we have access to God and being able to ask, it says here, whatever, but then when you are so in tune with God's promises and you ask according to God's will, then you will receive from him whatever you ask. Having this kind of relationship with God with a confidence to ask anything is evidence of a person that has been transformed by God. That person will be bold in prayer. That person will just talk to God during the day. When something comes up, you just start talking to God. If you're always asking God for things because you know you have a Heavenly Father who has promises to provide your needs, then be encouraged that you abide in God and God in you. Well, the third way we know we're saved is connected with that same sentence. We have confidence before God and whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and do what pleases Him. By this, we shall know that we are a Christian. You aim to please God by obeying God. This is how you can know whether you're of the truth and whether you're in Christ. Do you want to please God? Is the pleasure of God your highest motivation? When you became a Christian, your affections were changed. Where before your number one desire was to please yourself, when you became a follower of Jesus, you renounced yourself. You denied yourself. You died to yourself. You recognized that pleasing yourself was a dead end. And you don't live for yourself anymore, but you live for God's pleasure. And you please God by keeping his commandments. You want to be, obey his commandments. In chapter 5, John is going to go on to say that his commandments are not burdensome. And so you... So you gladly look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. You gladly contribute to the work of the saints. You gladly overcome evil with good. You gladly submit to the authorities. You gladly practice hospitality. You gladly love your wife or submit to your husband or honor your parents or stay pure until you're married or stay single. 
you gladly do not conform to the patterns of this world. We could go on and on. Those are just some of the ways to please God by keeping his commandments. If your overarching desire in life is to please God, you can be assured that God abides in you and you in him. In verse 23, God, or John here, gives two main commandments. And God does too. This is his commandment that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another. Here's that call to love one another again. Because we love God's son and we know God's son and we follow God's son, we will love as God's son loved us. But all of that, all, all of that flows from believing in the name of his son. And so a fourth way to know that you know God and have eternal life is that you have an ongoing belief in the Son. This is not talking about our our entrance into faith by trusting in what Jesus did. But this is a continual, ongoing faith in Christ. We, We keep on looking to Jesus. We continue to believe the gospel. We keep on leaning on Jesus. Whenever we sin, we think about the fact that Christ was tempted in every way such as we are but was without sin. Whenever we fail, we then point to Jesus as our only hope. We keep trusting in what he did, in what he did. Do you believe in the name of God's Son, Jesus Christ? If you do, you can know that you abide in him. Be encouraged. Be confident that you have eternal life. Be confident that you are of the truth. Be confident that you belong to God because of his Son. Number five, how do we know? By this we know that he abides in us, the last line of verse 24, by the Spirit whom he has given us. I love how John includes all three persons of the Trinity just in this small section here. God the Father, God the Son, and now God the Holy Spirit. But what does the Holy Spirit do? What is his role? Well, the Bible tells us that there are many roles that the Holy Spirit plays. He's our helper, he's our comforter. He he helps us understand. He illumines God's word for us. He intercedes for us before the Father. He convicts us of sin. He he enables us to have gifts in order to serve in the church. He gives us his love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. He fills us so that we can sing to each other. Did you know that when Christians sing in the church, that is evidence of being filled with the Holy Spirit. It says that in Ephesians 5, 18 and following. And that's just some of what the Holy Spirit does. He's God's presence that indwells those who believe. God is in us. But the role of the Holy Spirit that John is thinking of here is to assure you of your salvation. It's this witness of the Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit that opened your eyes to be able to see Christ. It's the Holy Spirit who breathed life into you when you were dead. The wind of the Holy Spirit, John 3, tells Nicodemus, Jesus tells Nicodemus about this. It sort of blows in your direction, and you were birthed again. It is the Spirit that gave you life. And when you experienced all those things that I talked about before, understanding God's Word, using His gifts, functioning in the church, praying, um, loving others, seeing evidence of the fruit of the Spirit, all those things bear witness to you being a Christian. By this you know, by the Spirit whom he has given you. So all those things 
are ways for you to know that you are in Christ. You know that there are lots of sections of Scripture that have warnings, that have admonitions, that have commands, that calls to, to holy living. And we no, no doubt need to hear those constantly. But once in a while, it's good to just receive encouragement from God's Word, to get some reassurance. And I think that's what John is trying to do here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He wants you to know that you are saved. Yes, you might miss the mark. Yes, we all fail. Yes, we might miss opportunities to provide for our brother's or sister's need. But don't let that lead you into despair. Let it allow you to change, but don't go to the extreme and, and get to a place of discouragement and despair. Don't let it affect your confidence. Should you be concerned when you sin? Definitely. Don't take sin lightly. Don't let rem- but don't let remaining sin condemn you to the point where you are rendered ineffective. These things have been written for you today so that you would remember that God is greater than your heart. And that because of that, you can reassure your heart and you can have confidence before God. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you don't want us to go through life in a state of introspection. Through Christ, through the gospel, you have given us abundant life, a life that is to be filled with joy as we love others, as we give of ourselves. Lord, even as we uh, suffer and are, are persecuted for your sake, we thank you that you have promised that our hearts can be reassured by your work in our lives and by the fact that we can come to you in prayer by the fact that you encourage us to love one another through the example of Christ. Help us, our Lord, to joyfully and willingly obey you. Help us to be believers that are filled with confidence and joy. We pray these things in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.